Hey, Paul, I'm excited to tell you that we are launching a Curbsiders Patreon. Have you heard about this? I I did because I work with you, but tell me more about it. (laughs) All right, Paul. Well, we want to be able to keep offering this great free content, and we're doing things like upgrading our website. We offer transcripts now for episodes, recording new seasons of our miniseries, Teach and Addiction Medicine. The Digest is growing its staff. And Paul, now we're on video. People can see us uh, as we're talking right here. What a treat for our listeners. That's right. So with Cashlack admitting privileges, they're going to get all episodes ad-free. That's the whole back catalog plus future episodes. And twice monthly, there's going to be bonus episodes where me and you recap a show and answer some listener questions. So people should sign up today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. And uh, you get a whole lot of more of Paul, America's PCP. <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Curbsiders, Meredith and Moni here. Just wanted to let you guys know that we're going to have a little bit more regular show for hospital medicine, which will come out on the first Mondays of every month. So if you guys are looking for more hospital medicine content, tune in um, first Monday each month and you'll get to hear a great episode from Moni and myself. So tune in. Get excited, people. Hey, Curbsiders, Moni here. This next episode is a little different for us. It's uh, recorded live at SHM in Austin this past March. We're really excited to have a couple of these live ones in the bank for you. This first one is the clinical updates with uh, fan favorite Dr. Rahul Ganatra, as well as uh, Dr. Heather Nye out of the VA out in California and San Francisco. And we're really excited about this one. So here we go. All right. Welcome back to Curbsiders. Uh, still in Austin, SHM, live, super pumped. Uh, this is the end of day two, and we just got to see a fantastic updates in hospital medicine articles talk from esteemed Curbsider, Dr. Rahul Ganatra, and um, first-time guest, Dr. Heather Nye out of the San Francisco VA. Mm-hmm. We're so excited to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Before we get started, would you mind telling uh, the audience like a one-liner? Oh, sure. I'm the Associate Chief of Medicine, and I'm a hospitalist at the San Francisco VA, and uh, UCSF, obviously, is where I'm academically associated. Awesome. And what's a fun fact about yourself? Oh, well, you guys already know that. I sing. Not yes. every, I sing and I write songs. That's... If you if you've been following the Curbsiders uh, social media feed during like SHM in real time, you will get a glimpse of that. Due to copyright reasons, we will not be posting it. She will not be able to sing for us today, but has a gorgeous falsetto, I have to say. Um, <laughs> there was also in a band. I was in a okay. band. Yeah. yeah. What kind of band? Um, I did a little bit of everything, okay. a little bit of original stuff. This is when I was a medical student and graduate student. Awesome. Yeah. All right. That's yeah. awesome. Okay. Well, we are going to close out. I guess this is our closeout, kind of. Yeah. Austin Picks of the Week. Meredith, what you got? Oh, I have to go first. Yeah. <laughs> and I know what yours is, so I have to come up with something different. I mean... I'll, I'll stick with the same food theme, though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say, I know we've talked about tacos as a whole, but I'm going to go with breakfast tacos. They're hard to find outside of Texas, um, but they're really a complete meal with, like, eggs and bacon, 
that I'm telling you as a vegetarian, um, some that's vegetables <laughs> is really well balanced. Um, some salsa that's more vegetables. So <laughs> you know how I feel about people telling me that vegetarians only eat vegetables. I do. Thank you. I appreciate that. As we have all these chips in front of us. <laughs> <laughs> they came from vegetables. <laughs> Rahul, what's your Austin pick of the week before we get too far down this rabbit hole? Okay, so my pick of the week is the bats. Do people know about the bats? Were you going to take that, Heather? Oh, okay. Well, I'll only say half the things I know about bats, and then we can just continue a bat-themed conversation. Uh, The largest urban bat colony in the world lives under the Congress Street Bridge, and they come out and fly in a huge swarm like an hour before sunset. And if you go running down the path just below the Congress Street Bridge, you can see them. And on the first night I was here, I was like totally uh, unplanned, luckily stumbled upon them. It's beautiful. It's really an experience. It's really cool. So check out the bats. Yeah. A little bit like Batman, Batman Begins vibes. Uh, Yes. And uh, also a lot of um, kind of like touristy, rickety boats and kayaks vibes because you can like rent a kayak and like you know, sidle up underneath the bridge and watch the bats swarm. So pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Heather, would you like to continue the bat talk or do you have something else? I I, I hadn't seen the bats, but uh, I was going to mention the bats because I heard about them yesterday and was planning on going down there tonight. But I did hear a fun fact about the bats, which was if you are underneath the bats for any given period of time, you are at high risk of bat urine, not oh. bat guano, drenching you. Oh In fact, there was an attendee that had to go home and change before dinner because that happened to her. That's so. unfortunate. Yeah. I like how you prefaced it as a fun fact, though. Yeah, it's a fun fact. <laughs> it's Watch an, out for bat urine. Exactly. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, so we don't end on bat urine. My pick of the week <laughs> is um, actually, as you, if you've been listening, know um, Meredith is more of a Texas local and spent a lot of time in Austin. So she uh, took me on a wonderful tour of um Austin things, uh, um, one of the evenings we were here and, uh, deliciously yesterday had this thing called Amy's ice cream and it was delicious. I I had a very basic flavor cookies and cream, but it was really good. Um, I can't tell you, I can't explain why it's better than most cookies and cream, but it is. Um, so yeah, we're going to close that with some cookies and cream, which is the only ice cream anyone should ever eat. Okay. I think we are ready to talk about some studies. So um, this is going to be a recap of the update in hospital medicine for 2022 that Heather and I just finished giving. Um, And the first paper that we're going to talk about is the Impulse trial. And this was a paper um, by uh, Voors and colleagues that was in a March 2022 issue of Nature Medicine. And the question that this study was asking was whether or not SGLT2 inhibitors, specifically empagliflozin, should be started during a hospitalization for acute heart failure. So what was compared in this study, um, adults hospitalized with acute heart failure were randomized to either empagliflozin 10 milligrams daily or placebo to be started during a hospitalization for an exacerbation. Um, And the primary outcome in this study was clinical benefit at day 90. And this was a composite outcome um, that included kind of all the usual stuff, mortality, exacerbations, and also symptom improvement. And the top line findings in this study was that patients who were randomized to empagliflozin were 36% more likely to have clinical benefit at day 90. And this was really driven by greater improvement in symptoms and greater diuretic responsiveness. So what questions can we answer for you about that? So 
I read this study and listened to you guys give this talk and you talked a little bit about it, but I wanted you to kind of explain the win ratio because this was the strangest thing I had ever seen. I felt like I was watching like ESPN baseball and they came out with this random <laughs> like, statistic. Like the wild card round or yeah. something. <laughs> and so I just was curious, like, is that really a valid measure and kind of going through that a little bit? Of course. Um, I am happy to talk about the little bit that I know about the win ratio. So my understanding of why do this as opposed to something simpler is that it allows you to compare um, components of a composite outcome where the there's a hierarchy to them so that you know the order of occurrence of the outcomes matters. Because you're only going to ask about symptom improvement in this study if patients didn't have an exacerbation and didn't die from you know any cause. So what this allows you to do is to sort of, um, in a more granular way than just using a hazard ratio for a composite outcome, the intent is that this allows you to um, do a head-to-head -head comparison um, between every patient in one group and every patient in every other group to ultimately arrive at kind of that distribution that we showed during the talk of like, where does the benefit to a drug come from? And this is what showed us that for, at least from pangliflozin, the benefit really is driven by symptom improvement. So that's my understanding. There's a little bit more that we talked about in the talk. And, uh, you know, I welcome if listeners, uh, you know, know more things and uh, have easy ways to understand it, you know, let us know on Twitter because this is something we kind of all struggled to wrap our heads around. No, as you're describing it, I... I, I'm going to have to think about it more, but I'm really envisioning, like, does anyone play Mortal Kombat where they have, like, the two, like, people that you're playing the video game with and yes. they have, like, their ratings for everything? And at yeah. the end, you can kind of see, like, which one should win based on the ratings, like, agility and quickness and strength and all that stuff. Maybe just me. I played a lot of Mortal Kombat. I did not recall that part of the game at all. I remembered, like, the punching. But, um, yeah. no, that's, I think that's a perfect analogy for the win ratio. I love it. Cool. Uh no, that I think that was really the biggest question we both had when we were talking about that one. Yeah. So the takeaway on that, you know, it's just basically a way to uh, use a composite outcome where you care about the um, relative importance or the hierarchy between those things. So in this study, they kind of prioritized the mortality benefit highest. That was the first question that was asked. Then after that, um, exacerbations were the next kind of item. If 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 no member of a pair died. Then they moved on to ask, well, did the patient have any, did anyone in the pair have an exacerbation? If the answer to that was no, then they asked who had a better symptom improvement. So it, it kind of incorporates that order of importance. And did they ask the follow-up questions? Like if there was like mortality as yes, you don't go to two and three? That's right. Okay. It could be, if a patient who got uh, in any given head-to-head, -head, if you know the patient who uh, got the placebo died, that counts as a win for empagliflozin. Okay. If neither patient died, then they went on to ask the question, did you have an exacerbation? If the patient who was on, say, empagliflozin had an exacerbation, that's a win for placebo. So you kind of have to survive, not survive, you kind of have to make it through each outcome in order to make it to that last outcome of symptom improvement. So saying that empagliflozin improved symptoms means that it was kind of among people who, you know, also did better with survival and exacerbations. So those who did not die. Correct. This episode is brought to you by Birch Living. Audience, you know I've had a Birch mattress for over two years now. And the reason is because I love this thing. 
It is a much better mattress than my previous one. I've talked how sleep has not come easy to me. I, I wake up too early. Sometimes I have trouble falling asleep. But guess what? Having a great mattress has made that easier, and I've worked a lot on my sleep game in the past two years. My Birch mattress is luxurious. It's breathable. It keeps me cool at night. It's made from great materials like organic fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex. And guess what? It's made right here in America and it's crafted with the finest materials and they're sustainably sourced. So you gotta love that. And you really don't have much to lose because Birch has a 100 night free sleep trial. You can send it back if you don't love it, but you're gonna love it. And you're gonna keep this mattress for a long time because it has a 25 year warranty. So what are you waiting for? Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's 20% off and two free eco-rest pillows so you can sleep better with Birch. Visit birchliving.com slash curb. Um, so this was a paper um, by Mullins and colleagues, and this was in a September 2022 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and the question that the ADVOR trial was asking was, does adding acetazolamide to loop diuretics lead to faster decongestion in heart failure? And what was compared in this study, patients were randomized one-to-one to get either uh, IV acetazolamide or a placebo in addition to a standardized protocol of diuresis using loop diuretics. The top-line finding in this study was that patients who were randomized to acetazolamide were 46% more likely to be euvolemic at day three. And this was an absolute difference of about 12% or a number needed to treat of eight. Can you talk a little bit about the congestion score and like how like clinically relevant that may or may not be? Yeah. So the primary outcome in this study was assessed by a congestion score. And this was a score from zero to 10 um, that was uh, kind of a composite of different physical exam findings. Um, This included edema, ascites, and pleural effusions. And the scores were assessed by cardiologists who were trained in this method. And a notable uh, omission is that um, weight was not a part of this and assessment of the jugular vein was not a part of the congestion score. So in terms of clinical relevance, you know, it doesn't incorporate some uh, pieces that I think we are used to using um, to track patients' volume status. But in terms of applicability, you know, there's a lot of variability in weight measurement. We know how difficult it can be to weigh patients who aren't able to stand. And we know that jugular vein assessment is also something that's kind of got a lot of variability to it. So the intent with using the components of the congestion score was that it was hoped that this would be something that was kind of reproducible uh, and and subject to less uh, ascertainment bias. So they didn't include the SGLT2 sort of because of timing. Um, But when I look at this one coupled with like impulse um, or frankly, all of the SGLT2 studies that have come out in the last couple of years, like how do you actually in practice apply the acetazolamide and um, the SGLT2? This is a really important question, Meredith. And all the cardiologists I've spoken to about this have been a little underwhelmed Um, And they've basically said that, you know, every study of is better diuresis better has shown that better diuresis is better. (laughs) So that's not really going to surprise anybody. Um, I do think the big, um, uh, the big unknown that remains to be seen with the applicability of of this trial is whether or not this same effect size is going to be seen in patients who are already getting, you know, action at that part of the nephron. Because impulse really suggested that it's, it's probably some 
type of diuretic augmentation that's responsible for that symptom benefit. So, you know, in the modern era where all patients with heart failure are going to be on SGLT2s, whether this effect size that we saw in a naive population from acetazolamide is going to translate, that that remains to be seen. And I guess just like out of curiosity, has it like changed your practice? Like, are you gunk on the acetazolamide and then starting the SGLT2 later? Can I tell you, I have been looking for the opportunity to try this and it has not presented itself yet, chiefly because everyone has been on SGLT2s. What this study did um, persuade me of, at least, is that augmentation of diuresis in patients who are not diuretic resistant is probably safe. Okay. And that is a question that comes up all the time. You know, whether patients um, whose output is slowing down, you know, should we start metolazone or chlorthalidone in these patients? This study, um, in my view, gave me um, some evidence to kind of make me feel like that strategy is, is going to be safe. Okay. And then, like, once again, I think... Um hospitalists are all about the heart failure. So I think that you guys had one other heart failure study. We're going to round out our heart failure with strong HF with a pun of we're bringing it home strong. Uh, Heather, would you mind telling us a little bit about it? No, I would love to. This was a a paper that answered the question, is rapid up titration of guideline-directed medical therapy for acute heart failure safe and effective? It was published in The Lancet in November of 2022 and got a lot of people's attention, frankly. And what this paper did was they uh, enrolled about 1,100 patients who were admitted with heart failure and had uh, within 72 hours of admission and then were not on guideline-directed medical therapy two days prior to discharge. And so about 1,100 patients were enrolled and they were either provided usual care, we know what usual care looks like, or high-intensity care. And what's tricky about the high-intensity care group is that they had multiple visits, one, two, three, and six weeks, where they saw the care team given an exam, had laboratory data, and they the goal with that group was to get them up to speed with full optimal doses of guideline-directed medical therapy, ACEs, ARBs, uh, beta blockers, or MRA, all of them. Um, And so what the authors found was that the primary outcome, which was a composite um, measure of 180-day all-cause death or heart failure readmissions, was actually lower in the high-intensity care group. So it actually worked. It was 15.2% versus 23.3% in the usual care group. Also, these patients had a lot better relief of their symptoms, um, uh, quite a bit at 90 days. Um, And it's kind of interesting to note that they were on lower doses of diuretics as well. So they were on the GDMT full doses and lower doses of diuretics. So... um, SGLT inhibitor 2 inhibitors were not included in this study either, uh, similar to uh, the uh, diuretic study that we talked about. The number of visits post-discharge is sort of excessive, and I don't know that all of our systems could handle that. It's pretty labor-intensive. Um, but overall, I, it, to me, I thought that this was a really well-done study that answered one of my questions and things that I would actually shame residents into, like say, look, you don't have to start everything before they leave. Gosh, like, what are you doing? And then cardiology is telling them something else. And so to me, I was like, all right, maybe the cardiologists know what they're talking about here. Yeah. So I, there's a couple of thoughts. The first was, and you pointed this out in your talk, which was the optimal doses for these things are a lot higher than I would have thought. And that's, the, I think that's probably yeah. what gives us a lot of pause. And I think Meredith and I talk about this a fair amount, like anecdotally, we feel like sometimes 
maybe it's just in our heads that like certain patients come back when they've been on all these meds with things that were maybe like, oh, were they sinkable because we started all these meds and stuff like that. And I think those doses might be part of that too. I don't know what your thoughts on that. I a hundred percent agree. I can't remember the last time I saw somebody on 40 milligrams of lisinopril, which is like the one that I care the least about the 200 of metoprolol. Did you see that one? I yeah. think that's nutty. I think what made me feel a little bit better about this was that these outcomes are still hold true with only just over half of patients at optimal doses. So half of the other patients that they did include were on less than optimal doses, probably for all the things that you're imagining might happen when you start those doses. And so it made me think this was still applicable to all of them, although you know, it wasn't 100% of people on those doses. And they were up titrating them over those visits. So it's not like they left the hospital necessarily on like 40 of lisinopril, 200 of metope. They kind of got up titrated over that six-week process. The first move at up titration of all of those meds was made in the hospital. Okay. But the rest of it, and they don't really get into the intervals or sort of like the increments that they went up or mm -hmm. if they switched from one to another, if they went up on all three at the same time. They don't have that granularity um, in the study. Um, and again, as you also saw that probably two weeks, not everybody was up to optimal doses. It took up to 90 days. So that was their goal. But they got there by 90 days. Yeah. I've, I feel like looking at kind of all three of these studies, the ultimate like endpoint is that we all should just be more aggressive with like what we're doing. And I think that's sort of been the theme over heart failure trials over the last few years, at least. Um, and we all just need to grow up and be comfortable with this. I, if you're not watching video, I'm currently, I have my hand over my face and like have like, I'm trying to peek through the one because that's how I feel when I'm sending some of pa these scary. patients home on all these medications. Um, it's scary for sure. It's terrifying. Right. Well, I will say that this is big news because like last year at a heart failure update, at SHM, which was a brilliant heart failure cardiologist. Her parting message was, you don't have to start all these at the same time. You guys worry about it too much. And, uh, you know, I think that now we're seeing that, you know, in all three of these cases that it probably is helpful and even helping patients feel better. I think that's the other novel thing we thought about this was that um, symptoms, uh, patient-reported outcomes were actually part of two of these important trials and happened to be the driving factor in the SGLT2 inhibitor trial. So I love, I love that. So talked a little bit about heart failure and by a little bit, a lot of it. Um, As we so, should, we're hospitalists. Um, we'll kind of switch gears a little bit um, and go into actually the perioperative like landscape um, and some of the studies you guys talked about in that field. Um, so Heather, do you wanna kind of start us off with going through, we're all in disagreement on how to say this, if it's crystal, crystal. <laughs> High price bubbly, guys. Come on. <laughs> we'll go with Crystal for now. <laughs> That's how I've been saying it. So, yeah, I'm happy to cover this trial. This was a pretty high profile uh, trial that asked the question if aspirin is aspirin monotherapy for VTE prophylaxis. Awesome. As effective as low molecular weight heparin after total hip and knee arthroplasty. It uh, was published in JAMA and came out in August of 2022. And there was a ripple effect across the perioperative community, um, really uh, paying close attention to this. And I'll just say that um, aspirin is, there were two or three papers that covered aspirin this year. So it was kind of exciting. 
Um, this group looked at uh, patients were randomized, actually hospitals were randomized to either give uh, aspirin after surgery or anoxaparin and uh, given it for total hips or knees for 35 and 14 days respectively. Um, and then they looked at uh, their uh, primary outcome was 90-day symptomatic VTE with secondary outcomes of 90-day death, readmissions, and a number of other things, major bleeding, et cetera. And uh, what the study, study authors found in the end was that there was actually, it was a non-inferiority trial for aspirin, and aspirin indeed did not achieve non-inferiority, but there was a statistically significant lower rate of symptomatic VTE in the low molecular weight heparin group, 1.8% um, versus 3.5%. Um, these were mostly lower extremity, below knee DVTs um, in this study, uh, but and no differences in mortality, major bleeding, or any of the other secondary outcomes. Um, so I think... Uh, to us, it was a, a, a well-designed study that really hadn't been done before. Some of the trials that have been done with aspirin as DVT prophylaxis, which is a very, very common practice, um, had really wonky um, lead-in periods of another anticoagulant, like five to 10 days of low molecular weight heparin or rivaroxaban. Oh, and then now you can start aspirin. And then they're saying aspirin's non-inferior. Unfortunately, that's not how it's being used. It's being used as monotherapy. And I feel like co-managing, um, like with orthopedics, the data seems different for some reason because they love the aspirin. They do. Um, and I, I often feel like medicine doesn't love the aspirin as much. Um, and this study seemed um, like the definitely did a little bit better with a low molecular weight um, heparin, but just kind of curious on how to like rationalized through that. Um, and it sounded like during your talk, you guys were kind of still leaning towards in your higher risk patients, keeping with like the low molecular weight. Yeah. Orthopedists are very passionate about aspirin. They are. They are. And they, um, they study it. A lot of the studies that were sort of not debunked, so to speak, but that were downplayed because of this study. Um, the study authors wrote very fervent sort of responses to this and, and challenged some of the methodology, when in truth, it's a very well-designed trial. The orthopedists really love aspirin uh, for a number of reasons besides VTE prophylaxis. There's a lot of observational studies. They're not great data, but they think that they lead to fewer joint infections, less stiffness afterwards. And so they look at aspirin for a number of different reasons. It's also easy and cheap. So those are the those are the major arguments. I think the best thing that we can do in uh, our role as hospitalists is really uh, speak reason and ask people to risk stratify and and say, look, we're fine with aspirin; it works well, but it it doesn't work as well in patients at higher risk. So in, in the confusion around aspirin, uh, there were a number of other trials, metric being one of them, in in uh, lower extremity fracture. Um, it's actually extremity fracture, to be totally honest. It was a study that looked and showed that their primary outcome was 90-day mortality, and they showed no differences between aspirin and low molecular weight heparin. I think it was low molecular weight heparin, mm -hmm. Is that right? Um, the problem was these were young patients. They were trauma patients. They had upper and lower extremity 
uh, fractures. So this was not hip fracture. So I think it's really, really important that we don't interpret that study as, oh, it's okay to give our hip fracture patients aspirin. It may be, but that is not what they were looking at. I mean, there was a subpopulation that were hip fractures. But it ends up being confusing. I know when you're trying to sift through this data, you know, you kind of want a one word answer, yes or no, do I give them aspirin? And, and it's not that easy. Um, well, and I think what complicates that even further, and you mentioned this, which was the international consensus meeting um, on the VT guidelines recommended <laughs> aspirin. Um, so, and then you mentioned some stuff that's like coming down the pipeline. So I was wondering yeah. if you could maybe speak to that. Yeah, that that's a frustrating recommendation. Let me just say that. Um, you know, it's gone back and forth in the guidelines. We had the ACCP guidelines in 2012. And then we, you know, I think ASH came out with the guidelines. And it always says one or the other may be okay. But this guideline last year was like whole hog, aspirin's great, strong recommendation, and all your patients, even the sick ones. So I, I thought it was a little over the top. But um we do have these these new trials are coming up to think in excess of 20,000 patients. They're going to enroll. They're randomized trials looking at both um, aspirin with a lead-in period and without a lead-in period. So to directly compare of rivaroxaban to compare aspirin monotherapy and uh aspirin with Riva to just see if the that's that's the EPCAT three. And the PEPPER trial is simply looking at aspirin monotherapy versus rivaroxaban monotherapy for VTE prophylaxis and uh, low-dose warfarin as if I guess somebody somewhere still uses that. Um, and they're going to, th so those, those will be really robust and I think we'll have a good answer finally. I totally agree with this interpretation of the CRYSTAL trial. Um, it was very clear that uh, low molecular weight heparin was superior to aspirin monotherapy. But I will just point out, you know, the professional society guidelines um, from 2022 were published before these results uh, were available. So kind of like what we've seen in other situations, like, for example, the waterfall trial, it's possible that these data, you know, reflect new knowledge that hasn't yet had a chance to be incorporated into professional society guidelines. Um, and, you know, as a generalist, non-expert, I kind of, you know, rely on guidelines to sort of have a recommendation for what to do in most situations. What I take from this is that people should be having, you know, risk stratification discussions with patients uh, and decision-making should be individualized uh, around a patient's uh, particular risk for VTE and deciding whether to use aspirin or low molecular weight heparin. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. Is hiring challenging for you? The answer is probably yes. Do you love a challenge? Also, yes, you're in medicine. Well, you need a hiring partner that can help you rise to that challenge. That's right, you need Indeed. It's the hiring platform that lets you attract, interview, and hire all in one place so you don't have to spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. You just need Indeed. They're going to streamline the whole process for you with powerful tools. We used Indeed back last year to do some hiring for the show and we had great results. We were overwhelmed with how many great candidates we got that met our job description and I would recommend that you use Indeed too. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed.
Um, so we can go ahead and switch then to near and dear to my heart, um, some periop gabapentin discussion. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Is it really near and dear to your heart? I love pain management. Oh, you do? Well, I love old people. Okay. So So. this was going to work out well. I feel like a friendship has just been born. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, yeah. So um, this is a a study that uh, looked at whether or not the routine use of gabapentin after major surgery in older adults causes harm. Is it safe? Et cetera. Um, it came out in JAMA Internal Medicine in September of 2022. Um, and it really, uh, why is, I think it's important to sort of delineate for those of you out there who don't do a lot of perioperative medicine that uh, gabapentin is increasingly being utilized in multimodal pain control regimens. And that often is seen in elective orthopedic surgery. It's seen in enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, et cetera. So it's being lumped in with opiates, Tylenol, um, and gabapentin and, and a number of other agents. Uh, and, and it's been done in sort of a sweeping way where they're not thinking about who they're giving it to. And, and we know as internists that older folks have different responses to some of these medications and gabapentin is no exception. And so this group did a retrospective cohort study. They looked at about 238,000 patients who had undergone surgery from 20, 2009 to 2018 and were over the ages of 65. And they compared, actually, they had the propensity match these patients, um, but they compared patients who had received gabapentin um, in post-op days zero to two as a new uh, medicine to them. They couldn't have been on it before versus those who did not receive that. And um, their primary outcome was delirium. They were looking, um, again, because this is a, a database a study, they, were, they had to use a validated claims-based algorithm to identify delirium. And they also looked at antipsychotic use, which can predict delirium, as well as pneumonia and, and in-hospital death. And they found that um, overall, not surprisingly, there's about a 30% increase in delirium rates in patients who were getting del- gabapentin after surgery. So 3.4% versus 2.6%. There were also very small but statistically significant increases in antipsychotic use and increased rates of pneumonia in this same population. So um, I think, to me, this was one of those thank you for telling me what we already know studies. Um, it just gives you a little bit of something to send in an email to the orthopedist. Um, uh, but... I, I was happy to see this study. I think better data is probably needed overall for us to make a huge change. Yeah. And um, I, you already said this, but I just want to highlight it. Like the study was really looking at people who are not on gabapentin already, but not like the like 95% of our patients who are somehow already on gabapentin when they come in. Um, <laughs> not always sure Which why is really sad. I, th- I, don't, I didn't mention that a lot of um, people who get these surgeries and are on gap, placed on gabapentin are actually still on them three months after their surgery, which is ludicrous because that is not how it's been studied. But that is, a, that is one of those unintended downsides to just routinely prescribing these meds. This is like a complete zag from what you guys just talked about. But, and I, I think I have an idea of why, but like they pick pneumonia, which I found to be kind of random. Is this assuming that, that it costs like 
aspiration or I, I'm, this is just me being like, I don't. I thought yeah. the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. I thought the same thing. It is. They, they, if you dig into the paper, it is the presumption is that you're going to have more aspiration in a delirious patient. And okay. so that's why they picked that. But you can imagine, like, it is sort of like often left field, you know. The vast majority of these patients were uh, elective surgery, remember? And uh, so they're not going to be like coming to the ED with a p potential infection. So it would be unusual for you to develop pneumonia unless potentially you had some micro aspiration. Yeah. They excluded anyone who was needing the gabapentin for another reason too, um, like during the stay. Yeah. Okay. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else, Dr. Amin? No, that pneumonia thing was just bothering me. Thank you for <laughs> validating my confusion. I very much appreciate it. I'll just highlight it. I feel like um, I've gone to a couple of the pain talks too during this conference and that's also been kind of the resounding message um, that we're prescribing gabapentin a lot um, in our patients. Um, but whether the data is really all there for exactly. all of the indications is kind of up in the air. Well, there's pain, consensus pain guidelines by like anesthesia, pain system, uh, American Pain Society. There's a, and, and those, um, Guidelines will talk about NSAIDs and say th these are indicated in certain types of perioperative pain, et cetera. Um, and then they have a caveat, but uh, come with come at risk for patients with AKI, or they say be careful and choose your selection. They don't do that with gabapentin. They do that for opiates. They do it for NSAIDs. And gabapentin's like a free for all. It's like hey, it's great, you know, no no harm, no foul. And uh, I, I think you know just exercising a little caution is what we're asking for. We're not saying don't give it. You're kind of describing, I feel like, the way we talked about tramadol for a while. Exactly. You know, like yeah. I remember when I was in med school dating myself um, where like everybody got tramadol yeah. because it was like not <coughs> opiates and stuff. Totally. And here we are talking about gabapentin in a similar way, I feel. So I don't know. So at the talk I was just at... Um, Gabapentin is the second most prescribed medication at the speaker's hospital, and the first is tramadol. Wow. <laughs> Probably behind those, there's some nefarious advertising somewhere that's making that happen. Yeah. Wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so we can, I guess, switch gears. Um, we're going to kind of take a left turn, I think, a little bit um, and talk a little bit about the waterfall study? You know, I have to admit, when I first saw the study, I was like, oh, IV fluids. You know, what? Are, you know, like, it's just such minuscule sort of stuff. But the more I dug into it, the more impactful I realized this study was going to be. So waterfall looked at aggressive versus moderate fluid resuscitation strategies in patients with acute pancreatitis. Um, and uh, as we all know, uh, tons of papers are coming out with, like, comparing a lot of fluid versus a little fluid, and this seemed to be yet another one, but particularly important because guidelines have recommended we, we essentially flood our patients in the first 24 hours. I mean, there's no secret about it. It's like eight to 12 liters if you if you do the math in, in the AGS guidelines. Um, so what these guys did was they uh, took two fluid resuscitation strategies, the aggressive and moderate, and patients who came to the ER within uh, 24 hours of symptom onset of pancreatitis were randomized into one of two fluid strategies. Now, they were excluded if they were already showing signs of moderate to severe pancreatitis.
hepatitis, uh, like AKI or respiratory failure or other other um, kind of more serious signs. In the aggressive arm, they got about a, a liter and a half bolus and uh, 200 an hour or so of fluids. In the moderate arm, they only got a bolus if they were deemed by exam and laboratory findings to be hypovolemic. So some of them didn't even get a bolus. And then they received about 100 an hour. And I'm kind of just sort of rounding up for the audience here. And then they looked at their, their primary outcome was whether or not patients progress to moderate to severe pancreatitis. And those were things like creatinine over two, local complications, persistent hypovolemia, persistent hypotension despite IV fluids. So those were signs and symptoms of severe pancreatitis. They also looked at a lot of other secondary features like organ failure, ICU admission, symptoms, et cetera. Um, they monitored really closely volume status here, and it, it was a safety outcome that they were sort of uh, wedded to following. Um, and so this study was actually stopped prematurely before I get to the primary and secondary outcomes because the safety outcome noted a much greater difference than they anticipated in volume overload. So the aggressive arm, one in five patients uh, were volume overloaded, 20.5%, uh, whereas in the moderate resuscitation strategy, it was 6.3%. So they only stopped it at a total of enrollment of like 250 patients, and it was delayed to go up to 750. So it may be underpowered for the other findings, but suffice it to say that neither fluid strategy came, ahead, came out ahead in the primary and secondary outcomes, which were progression to severe pancreatitis or respiratory failure necrotizing pancreatitis. So in fact, it looked like the aggressive arm, again, was performing much, much worse in all of those categories. And so the authors concluded that uh, it, there doesn't seem to be a benefit from using an aggressive fluid strategy. Um, in fact, there may well be harm. We just haven't shown it definitively here, um, and that there is certainly a risk of volume overload in these patients. Yeah, I think this was what, I mean, I know the heart failure stuff is getting all the hype right now, but this was one of my favorite studies because I feel like the, not guideline, but kind of the adage you learned during training was, you know, keep giving them fluids. It's okay if they end up intubated, all of these things. But in your heart, you're kind of like, it feels like we're doing harm in a way. And so this, I feel like was just such a question that I've had for such a long time that they did a really great job at addressing and answering. Yeah. Well, even one of our first episodes that we did was pancreatitis. And um, we didn't go into specifics of how much, but I do remember our guest, um, Dr. Sharzi, mentioning, like, just keep giving them fluids. And this is well after that episode aired. But I do remember that just like we learned in training. So um, it's just like kind of kind of like you were saying about the last one. It kind of proves something that we've all kind of been thinking for a while, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. For sure. And I but I just want to add, I mean, it is in the ACG guidelines to, you know, aggressively fluid resuscitate people. So, I mean, it is important anytime you're talking about, um, you know, deviating from what's in the professional society guidelines to sort of make sure that we have a good justification for that. And I think in this case, the recognition that the evidence base for aggressive fluid resuscitation was actually really limited. Mm -hmm. It was mostly animal studies um, and, you know, the hypothetical benefit of preventing regional pancreatic hypoperfusion was sort of the justification given for aggressive fluid resuscitation. So I view this as kind of a natural extension, a natural update um, to the existing guidelines. We have better data now to 
um, you know, suggest a change in practice. So, you know, it's important to kind of pay attention to what's in the guidelines, but I think in this case, um, we have better evidence and, and a good reason to, uh, to consider a moderate resuscitation strategy. And I think the other thing that's important was how they set up the study, like the patients in the moderate group were still like, could get a bolus if they were deemed hypovolemic and you thought that they really needed like more fluids and everything like that. So, um, the way it was set up still like lean and even the moderate group still got a fair amount of fluids. I think at the 48 hours, they're still at like five liters compared to exactly seven. both groups got, and this was, I think one of the, the safety checkpoints that they were doing, like they did it at three, six, nine hours. And each one of those time frames, they could have increased the fluids or decreased them based on a bunch of, based on volume status and other safety measures. And so, um, it, I, we can't do that with all of our patients, but it's reassuring that we're, we're not missing something here. Um, I was going to say that the guidelines, I, I love the guidelines, but they're from 2013. I mean, come on, GI, get get out of bed. There's also, uh, there's also a, a, acute pancreatitis, there's like a pancreatitis guidelines also from 2013. Um, and I so. think that's how they ended this paper too, that they were like, this study is helpful, but there's like... So many other spaces we could start looking at for pancreatitis right. on therapeutics and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is true because it's fluids, NPO. And I mean, you said at the beginning when at your talk that like uh, we literally have no <laughs> treatment for pancreatitis. No, we so. don't. Prevention. <laughs> Sometimes it cannot be helped. So we had one last one that we wanted to go over um, regarding pick lines and midlines, which is, I know, a hot topic of debate all the time. So please fill us in. Absolutely. So we reviewed a paper that was by Lakshmi Swaminathan and colleagues in the January 2022 issue of JAMA Internal Medicine. And this paper basically asked the question, are midlines better than picks, peripherally inserted central catheters? And the way that this study was carried out was the authors did a retrospective cohort study that compared patients who had midline catheters placed against patients who had pick lines placed for the specific indications of difficult venous access or among people who needed IV antibiotics for up to 30 days after discharge. And the primary outcome in this study was major complications within 30 days. And this was a composite of symptomatic upper extremity DVT or PE, uh, bloodstream infection or catheter occlusion. And the top line findings in this study were that among patients with those indications, uh, pick lines were associated with twice the odds of major complications uh, as midlines. And in uh, looking at the specific outcomes, um, the odds of bloodstream infection were about four times higher with pick lines. The odds of occlusion were about uh, two times higher with pick lines compared with midlines. There wasn't a compelling difference uh, in DVTs because the number of events uh, in both groups was overall similar. But in terms of that composite outcome by day three, uh, it looks like uh, much higher odds in patients who got pick lines. Um, so when they did like any of the adjustments, was it based on kind of the fact that like midlines tend to be in there for a shorter time. So therefore would have like less of these complications or like adjust for that. So that we're really going off of the length of the catheter itself. Yeah, this is a really important question. And um, the authors accounted for that difference in catheter lifetime in their analysis. Um, the main analysis um, just used a count of outcomes, um, which is kind of indicated by the fact that they used an odds ratio. 
But um, one of the secondary outcomes was doing the primary analysis, but accounting for the difference in catheter days. And so that's where we had something that I addressed in the talk, um, which I'm not going to spend too much time on here. You can read the paper and uh, you know, tweet at us if um, anyone disagrees, but there was a secondary outcome in this study that suggested that pick lines were associated with fewer DBTs than midlines. But that was, I think, fully explained by the fact that pick lines stayed in so much longer. What the authors didn't report was the um, number of uh, DBTs per uh, patient or per catheter. Um, that would have been a useful way to disentangle that. They did report outcomes in terms of uh, catheter days, um, and there was not a dramatic difference uh, in any of the, um, or in, in the outcome of DBTs when uh, standardized catheter days. And then um, the only other thing I had seen when I looked at this paper too is, um, it may not be like necessarily relevant, I just didn't know why. There was like a big um, like uh, racial difference between who got like pick lines and who got midlines. Yeah. No, I, I don't have a good explanation for that, apart from to say that it, you, it does highlight one of the sort of critical limitations of retrospective cohort studies, which is when you're not randomizing patients to the two comparisons, um, you run the risk of an imbalance of both measured and unmeasured confounders. So, you know, it's not unusual to see differences in things totally unrelated to the um, exposure of interest, in this case, things like race and ethnicity, and asking the question, could any of those differences actually account for the outcomes that we observe? That's a really important learning point when you're um, thinking about uh, evaluating retrospective cohort studies. I don't have a good answer for why that would have been the case here, but you bring up an important point that I, I want learners, uh, listeners to, to think about. Okay, awesome. Um, so I think we should actually go to like the most important study you guys presented um, <laughs> since we're at SHM and we're all a bunch of hospitalists. Um, I think this was really practice changing for me. I, I have to say, <laughs> I have not been so excited to talk about a paper in so long. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, what you'll know is that Meredith is the study junkie and I'm sort of the sideshow Bob making jokes about <laughs> pop culture all the time. Um, and so I'm, I'm just saying that this is a big effing deal, what we're about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I won't like spoil it too much, but one paper talking about uh, how people or how individuals not in healthcare really are perceiving hospitalists. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, this was a paper that looked at the general public's understanding, and I should qualified general public by saying the Minnesota general public's understanding of uh, medical roles and hierarchy. Um, and by medical roles, I mean, like, what does a special, what does a specialist do? We're basically the questions. Um, and they did their study at a uh, county fair. They basically grabbed people who were walking by a study booth, about 200 adults over 18, who said that they had no medical or nursing background. They uh, gave all the respondents 14 questions that were sentence completion, and they basically asked, what does a specialist do? In other words, hospitalists are doctors who take care of blank. And then the second, second part of this was um, taking all the team members of an academic medical team, like medical students, residents, interns, attending, and, and ranking them in order from least to the most experienced. And what they found 
was that of the 14 subspecialties that they looked at, um, the hospitalists uh, were only recognized by about 31% of people. Oh. And you might... <laughs> it wasn't the worst, though, guys. It, it wasn't. It gets worse. Nephrologist was the absolute worst. Um, but it's if you think about... We were like number 11, I think, out of 14. So pretty bad um, with a couple of well-known, well-treated specialists at the top, dermatologists and cardiologists uh, were like over 90% recognized. And the... Um, the funny things about this article for many of us who read it were that um, some of the wrong answers that were most commonly written down included nephrologists care for the dead and internists care for insides. Yes. So, um, that's not wrong. No, it, it, it's not. Um, I just, I would be remiss if I did not shout out my brother who is a nephrologist. Sorry, Akash. Uh, Taking care of dead people. You know, kidneys, Thank you for the work you do. The beans. So... <laughs> I love nephrologists, just to clarify. As do I. Morally obligated. They're good people, and we need them, frankly. Um, and hospitalists. There, some people thought that hospitalists actually care for the hospital building, which was, was especially troubling um, for us. Not totally wrong all the time, though. <laughs> it's true. I take out my own garbage. <laughs> I, when I, in public, will mention that I'm a hospitalist in settings where there are no other healthcare workers, I literally get, is that a thing? <laughs> Yes, it, it is a thing. 20 years running. Okay, so it was also a little disappointing in terms of uh, provider experience, what people knew about it. Um, attending physicians were only recognized as the most senior members of the team 27% of the time. And maybe not surprising because it's in the name, senior residents were most frequently categorized as the most experienced members of the team. I actually did not find that part as surprising because I have definitely had patients who are like, I had like when I first came out of training and I was like, I'm the attending, they're like, what is that? Yeah. And so then I switched to saying like a supervising yeah. position right. for the team and that like computes much better mm -hmm. for patients. Um, Merid so Meredith, you didn't say inpatient boss. No, like, but my that was a good suggestion um, for other publicists. PR, yeah. My residents actually will introduce me as the boss lady sometimes. And I, I find it go. to be the most effective. It honestly, it, right. Especially as women in medicine. Yeah, you cannot soft pedal it, can you? No. Otherwise, they're like, well, surely she's going to take my pulse or something. Yeah. Which sometimes I do as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think the summary from that was like outside of hospital medicine, maybe needing to get a new publicist that we need to probably doing, be doing a little bit better job at actually communicating what our role is and not assuming everyone knows what a hospitalist is. Definitely. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. Definitely. A hundred percent. Okay. Well, Rahul, Heather, we've taken so much of your time. We are so, so grateful that you were able to give us this glorious hour of your time. Um, were there any things that you want everyone to take home or do you feel like we nailed it? I think one of the, one of the take homes that we were talking about was like, literature can be fun. Don't be afraid of it. Everybody can understand it. Um, sometimes you need to sort of break it down. A hundred percent. I mean, the other thing that I uh, took away from this experience was uh, seeing firsthand just how much of a group activity critical appraisal is. Um, reading things with other people, talking with your friends and colleagues about things you're reading. That's really the only way to kind of uh, learn things you don't know and, um, and uh, expand your knowledge base. So uh, don't be intimidated by, you know, trying to keep up with the literature. It's easier if you do it with other people. Literature with friends <laughs> could be the new book club for doctors. I love that. <laughs> I was literally going to say book club. <laughs>
Okay. All right. No, uh, again, thank you so much. And uh, we will hopefully be able to get Heather on here for something else down the line. Very much enjoyed (laughs) this time. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Still hungry for more? Yep. Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com backslash curbsiders. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to me and Meredith for writing and producing this episode, as well as the whole team with Curbsiders. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Amin. And I've been Meredith Trubit. In case you didn't know, thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs>